Hello and welcome to The Thing About Golf, the podcast series from Golf Australia magazine that explores the myriad reasons why even otherwise intelligent people seem to get hooked on this apparently addictive game. My name's Rod Murray and I'm your host for this regular dive into the psyche of golfers, a journey that sees us mingle with pros and duffers alike, not to mention every level of player, administrator and entrepreneur in between. On today's episode, we're going to meet a man who's devoted almost his entire life to the study and creation of golf courses, including a lengthy stint as Greg Norman's main representative here in Australia and Asia. Bob Harrison is a name synonymous with anybody who has an interest in golf courses and their design. His credits while working with Norman, including the Mooner course at the National and the privately owned Elliston in New South Wales. Since parting ways with Norman in 2009, Bob's been out on his own, and recently he's attracted accolades for his design at the intriguing Ardfin course on the island of Jura in Scotland. More about that as we get into the interview. We'll meet Bob and get a bit of insight into how he came to do the job he now does shortly, but first, a bit of administration. I'll start with a welcome and thanks if you're a first-time listener. We're a broad church here at The Thing About Golf, and we hope that you like what you find. There's not a lot, not a lot of razzle-dazzle, but if it's substance that you're after, well, we feel and we hope that you've come to the right place. This is episode 12 of the show, but don't be shy about checking out the archives. We've met everybody from Barnboogle Dunes owner Richard Sattler to Australian Omen winners called Peter in the form of Lonard and Senior. Now, while we don't play favourites around here, I will let you in on one little secret, and that's to say that I think our chat with golf writer John Huggin a couple of episodes ago was one of our best. For all of that, just head to the Golf Australia website at golfaustralia.com.au, click on the podcast tab and subscribe from there, or even easier, look us up on Google or Apple Podcasts on your mobile device and click the subscribe button. It costs nothing, and we will magically appear in your playlist every time we release a new episode. Naturally, we're also open to feedback and suggestions. The easiest way to get in touch in the digital age is via Twitter. You can get me directly at at Rod underscore Morrie, or the show has its own handle at at Thing Golf. That's capital T-H-I-N-G, capital G-O-L-F. My direct messages are open on Twitter, so you can always send me a note, and a few of you already have with suggestions, which have been gratefully accepted and some will even be acted on in the not-too-distant future. If Twitter isn't your go, contact Golf Australia magazine on Facebook or via email at golf at golfaustralia.com.au. As always, check the show notes below and you'll find the links there. If you like the show and would like to help us grow, share it with a fellow golf tragic you think might enjoy it. That's the best way to get the show heard by more people. Enough of the homework. Let's get to it. Now, in the subculture that's golf course architecture, Bob Harrison needs no introduction. The longtime design partner of Greg Norman, Harrison was predominantly responsible for most of that company's work for most of its life. But that doesn't begin to tell the story of Bob Harrison. From a near partnership with Seve Ballesteros to eventually turning down the design of both courses at Barnboogle Dunes, Harrison has a plenty entertaining story to tell. An intelligent, thoughtful and articulate speaker, we had the same jumping off point for this conversation as for all in this series, and that was to ask Bob Harrison, what is the thing about golf? Well, that's an interesting question, but it's also a very hard choice of words. I mean, I think for me there's two answers. The first one is to do with playing golf, and then not long after, actually, um, getting into the golf course design business. 
The playing golf part was simple. Uh, my mates and I were fanatics about all sports when we were at school. <clears throat> and when we were in um, early high school, we tried golf. Whereabouts, Bob? Where did you grow up? What um, Australia? I grew up in Lane Cove. Okay. Um, we, the, the, the first courses we played on were the old Chatswood course. Uh-huh. I don't know if you remember that, but the first hole was a drop-down par three from a cliff. Yes, very much. So we started there. Mm-hmm. And being on a golf course was just, I mean, this was the ant's pants. And at the same time... What sort of age did you say, around? 12, 13. Okay, perfect. My, my parents had a, a, a shack on Lake Conjola in the middle of the bush. If it had been there recently, it would have been in real trouble. Mm-hmm. Conjola's expanded. And uh, one of my schoolmates and I joined um, Mollymook. Ah, right. And we played on the old nine-hole course. Do you know beach, that? The beachside course. The beach one. Well, it's no longer what it was because um, you could argue it wasn't a great course, but it was a proper golf course. Mm-hmm. And when they built the other one, they subsequently changed the um, the clifftop one to a sort of a bits and pieces thing. It's a very laid-back sort of atmosphere, isn't it? You can go with the kids. and Yeah. Anyway, we, I can remember the, the very first time we played in a comp, we were 13, and the first tee um, is right on the beach and quite a bit above the beach. And the two, two of us, 13-year-old, were about to play with the greenkeeper. And this was just an amazing thing for us. We were awestruck. So we're waiting for this bloke. He turns up, walks out under the tree, drops about 10 old balls at the back of the tee, tees them up, and hits them all out into the ocean. He was trying to hit surfboard riders. <laughs> <laughs> so that was our introduction. to. But the thing about golf for me with all of this was I was never a good golfer. And it used to really worry me because people thought I was going to be. And poor old Daryl Welch gave me two years of free lessons at the Australian thinking that I might well be the second left-hander to win a major. I never got below nine, so the poor guy. But I think, And it used to absolutely destroy me as to why this was. I even tried to get hypnotised so that I would perform to my best. But I now know what it is. If you haven't got good balance and if you... And hand-eye coordination is not good. You haven't got much chance of being consistent okay. playing golf. No. So there you go. But it was the, the thing about golf with the play, um, it's what a lot of people talk about. If you get one right out of the middle and your hands hum, there's just nothing like it. I mean, it just hooks you straight away. But it wasn't long before I got to, um, to being in the golf design business. And the thing about golf... Um, with that part of it for me has been it's a lifelong thing um it's been um it's been my work except for a small interlude at civil and civic um but even if it hadn't been my work if i'd have been able to find a way to make it a hobby i would have i mean it's fantastic fun that doesn't mean that everything about it's easy i mean if you're dealing with with committees and with clients and with authorities and approval process and god knows what um there are difficulties with any business, mm-hmm. but this one has the advantage of being great fun and inspiring. And, I mean, you want the business to be reasonably successful financially, but if that was your only motivation, you're missing out. I mean, for me, it was a, a passion about a number of things, but one of them um, is the artistry of golf courses. Um when I was a young black, I was really interested in landscape. I did a, a fair bit of landscape painting. Um, and then I was doing civil engineering at uni. I started out wanting to be a theoretical physicist. So just to, just to pull up there before we go much further, they seem to polar opposite concepts and pursuits. Landscape painting and civil engineering – 
both sides of the brain seem to be dominating there. How can that be, Bob? Well, uh, as I said, um, this might in, explain in your the, golf problems. You've in, got in, too in, much going on. In the first sides. instance, um, I wanted to do architecture, but you won't believe this. And I'm not being critical, but my parents and all their friends came from a very difficult background. They'd been through the recession and all the rest of it. And I wanted to do architecture. No, don't do architecture. Buildings are going to be preformed before long and there'll be no, be no work for architects. I mean, it's, it sounds terrible to say it now, but that was part of the motivation. And, you know, I regret that a little bit, but not much. Um, I wanted to do the theoretical physics. That meant doing advanced maths. There was only a very small class that covered a number of faculties. And I was reasonable. But there were two or three people who could almost do it in their heads at this level. And I just sort of thought, well, I'm not in that category. So it's a bit like golf, isn't it? When you meet someone who can really play, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you realise that your middle of the club shots and their middle of the well, club shots are two different well, things. Well, actually, I mean, my, my play's never good, good enough to compare with anybody who was really good at any stage, except that um, I was very long. I mean, really, really long. Uh-huh. Uh, but I never got below nine. So um, anyway, so... I ended up doing civil engineering. I have no, no regrets about that at all. I mean, it's just the greatest fun to be part of the culture of civil engineering. All the things we got up to and everything was great. What is civil engineering? For those of us who probably don't know, is it, that, it's roads and drainage and those sorts of things? Uh, that what, yeah. Is that what that is? It's, it's to do with earth, with structures. Big projects. With yeah. water. Yeah. Anything to do with water, say for water supply systems, pipeline, whatever, drainage is part of it. Um, earth. Building, water, that's basically it, but it covers a broad spectrum. Um, and there are you know, lots of other, other departments in engineering, electrical and so on. But it was good fun because the guys in civil engineering were a different sort of brand. Um, they were into all the commemday stunts. And um, I mean, I was a, the engineering sports rep for a couple of years, which meant failing. It was a full-time job. We, we, every year they had this thing called the Penfold Shield where the different, fa- different faculties play against each other in every possible sport. And we used to win every year because we'd put the effort into organising people to play tiddlywinks or ping-pong or swim or water pole, whatever the heck it was, and nobody else did. So we always won. But whoever had the job of being the sports rep ended up failing. Two guys before me failed. <laughs> so... Um, and look, if we've got time, I'll tell you a very brief commemoration. We absolutely have to. The whole point of the show is that we A commemoration stunt that really impressed me in my first year. Civil engineering is across um, City Road from the main campus of Sydney University. It's towards Redfern. And when it came to commemoration, or the week before, the local council were digging up City Road. They're doing some sort of roadworks. The day before the commem day came, the engineers um, went to the workers on the road and said, look, tomorrow's commem day. There's going to be a group of engineering students dressed as policemen come and try to stop you from doing this. And then they rang the police and said, tomorrow's commem day and there's going to be a group of engineering students digging up City Road <laughs> and then just stood back and watched. <laughs> I mean, it was, a, it was a great thing to be part of. But it gave me my chance too because I liked it. I liked the big picture of civil engineering but not the detail mm-hmm. and not 
what you faced as a career where you had to work your way through all of that before you got to anything big. So I convinced the professors in the final year to let me do my thesis on a golf course project. And, yeah, that wasn't outrageous because the reasons we just talked about. There are a lot of civil engineering aspects to golf course projects. Big project. Well, you know, water supply and drainage and earthworks and God knows what. So they agreed, provided I could find somebody in industry who was preparing to actually do such a project so they can compare with what I did as my thesis with what was actually happening. Now, I don't know how I did this, but I found Len Lease preparing to do Cameltown Golf Course at Glenalpine. The existing um, Cameltown Golf Club was getting moved to make way for the hospital, and Len Lease had done a deal with the State Planning Authority, and they were moving the whole thing. <coughs> so I did my thesis on that project. And then straight after um, qualifying, I got a job with Len Lease. So who, who was designing the Campbelltown? Oh, well, just me, yeah. Th- they had uh, Von Hagee, Barnes and Devlin oh, okay. do it. Right. Um, and boy, I mean... Did you meet Von Hagee? Oh, yeah. We did a, a podcast quite, on him. What a character he seemed. Quite like. a few times. <laughs> I mean, he was just off the planet. Did he wear the cape when he you met him? He came to the meetings with Len Lease wearing the big flowing red cape. <laughs> um, you obviously know the story, but he had brushback yellow canary hair, canary yellow hair, um, he was a really big, imposing sort of guy. He'd play Joe Palooka in the films. Yeah, yeah. Sort of a Superman character over there. He'd married um, one golfing sister. And Laura Bohr. Laura Bohr. Yeah. And then, he, uh, not Laura Bohr, um, Marlene. Oh, Marlene, yes, Marlene. Uh, and then a year later, divorced her and married her twin sister. That's right, yes. So this guy was really flamboyant. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, bunkers were descriptive sing- signals. There was nothing that was ordinary. Uh-huh. In parallel with that, he had... Bruce Devlin, uh-huh. who showed up a bit but not very much, and Merv Barnes. I don't know if you knew Merv. I didn't know. He was the then secretary manager at the Lakes. Oh, okay. And boy, was he a flamboyant character too. Really? Okay. So they were really all suited. <clears throat> Len Lease had nobody um, in their scheme of things who you know, was a really keen golfer or who could inter- interact with them. I'd just done this thesis. I was the bloke to get, so they got me. So you were the middleman between I was the middle Len Lease and this crew of <laughs> lunatics. Yep. <laughs> I was the middleman. A year later, so I was a year out of university, um, Len Lease fired them and took a chance with me. Oh, wow. Yeah. Why, why did that? Um, why, were they too flamboyant? I think perhaps? even though they – I'm not sure about this, but, but I suspect that they'd already reached a conclusion that these guys were a bit over the top, even though – they didn't necessarily understand the business per se. And also that um, they had produced a plan. Uh, do you know the Campbelltown site at all? Yeah, I do. I've played there a few times. Right. Well, it goes along the valleys yeah. and there are, there are steep sides with the houses overlooking. The design when I got involved went up and down those hills. Oh, right. And these are in the days when this is Campbelltown Golf Club. No one's going to go around in a cart. No. So everybody walked. Yeah. And uh, my first impression was, I'm straight out of university, so I was a bit afraid to say this, but this looks too steep. Um, And then I had to, so I got really lucky. I got a mentor who was the chief executive in Lend-Lease, Holmes, and um, he had a bit of faith. So he sent me around to do a study to try to work out how to compare what was proposed with the steepest courses in Sydney. So I went to Pennant Hills and a number of places, tried to work out some sort of comparison and even if I was wrong in in some of the things I assumed or the lines I'd drawn, it was pretty obvious it wasn't a thing to do. 
So they just took that opportunity and said, well, okay, that's that. So changed the design yep. completely from – You guys go. Right. Now, it, I mean, how not many How pe- old were you, Bob? I was 22. And you do- <laughs> no, designing I was a, <clears throat> you're designing an, an 18-hole golf course. Before we come back to that, I'm interested to know how it unfolded from there. Did you learn anything or were you influenced in any way by that short period with these outrageous characters of Barnes yeah. and Von Hagge? And Von Hagge in particular, who had uh, – I've not seen a design of his that I particularly like, but what an incredibly interesting man with an interesting thought process about the game and light and shadow and how it should all work aesthetically. Yeah. I, I shouldn't make light of them because despite the uh, the uh, flamboyance, Von Hagge was pretty mm. good. Knew his stuff. In, in no some question. respects, he was pretty yeah. good. Um, and I think the first the first run at the the greens at the lakes, for example, that was around about sixty seven. Yeah. Um, before they started tinkering with them, and they've been changed so many times since. But the very first run, some of them were really interesting greens. And the drawings that he sent, um, what used to happen is I'm at Campbelltown because I was living there, and they'd send the drawings to and from, and um, they were good. A lot of them were good. What was wrong? was the actual concept. The, the, the layout of the course and, was hopeless. The hills, yeah. so, so, yes, I, th- I thought they had good Id- some good ideas, and they had good ideas about appearance. Mm. Um, he was very aesthetically driven, wasn't he? He talked a lot about light and shapes throwing shadows at certain times of day. and Yep, and, and I'm totally in his camp. Yeah. That's where I came from too. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was partly driven by the play of golf. You all have to be if you're in this business. But... Um, more than half of my motivation was making things look good. I was interested in form and mm-hmm. natural shape. Is, is it a, sorry? Is is it an <clears throat> overlooked part of course architecture for those of us who talk about it all the time? Are aesthetics d- d- more important than we give them credit for? Perhaps? It depends who's doing the talking. Um, I mean, a couple of comments. First of all, I think by and large golf course architecture has got better in that respect from then till now, by and large, not everybody. In those days, there was a fascination with having one set of shapes in a fairway and a bunch of igloo mounds going down either side of a hole, and that's how they – it's, it's a dreadful stuff. Sort of the chocolate drop uh, I was just, effect. Just, I mean, how could anybody do that? And are they not looking at anything? Um, so... Um, when people talk, uh, it's a bit of a mixed answer to that question. A lot of people would not recognise what it is that they like about certain appearances, shape, what, what the components are that make that. But I think it's a bit like saying, um, is there any objectivity to say music? Well, yes, there is, because even though there's a variety of different opinions and some people hate things and some people don't, by and large, you end up with Beethoven and Mozart and so on. <clears throat> the so cream that, always rises. Yeah, there is a level of objectivity. It's yeah. not total. No. Um, so, And the other thing is, I mean, I think more commentators these days would probably be aware, maybe not the average Joe Blow, but I think they'd be aware that they like something or don't. And, and therefore, that it is... I mean, it's way better to do it well anyway, but I think you would get a reasonable response in terms of... of the average observer liking something or not liking something. But for me, I mean, it's a huge amount of effort has gone into that over all the years. Because, of course, <clears throat> one of the parts of it that I think we ignore aesthetically, quite simply, is colour. To my eye, the courses of the British Isles, 
when they're sort of browned off and we see them in some of there's, there's not the bright greens. To, to my eye, that's when they're at their best. It's why I love the look of Barn Boogle as well as the playability of it. If you took Barn Boogle and spray-painted it that Arizona green, it would look awful. Now, it would be the same golf course, but it would look awful and it would take away from the experience and the joy of playing it. And we almost never talk about colour and contrast in golf course design, I feel. Well, I think I'll go back to colour in a second, but I think you've, you've hit one of the jackpot words, and that's contrast. Um, things look better if there is a, um, a lot of contrast. I was going to say a degree of contrast, quite a lot of contrast, between the refined playing areas and what's outside of that. So that can be contrast in colour, contrast in texture. Is that, a sig- is that a subconscious signal to the brain of these are the playing areas and these are the not good areas to be? Is there, anything, is well, there, is there a golf sen- element wrapped up I in that? I suppose it sends that signal too, of yeah. course. But for me, it's what the thing looks like that, that uh, really motivates me. The worst of all these things is you can accept green in some circumstances. So, for example, at Augusta National, um, that was sort of a nursery. And... Um, they were exotic sorts of trees throughout that nursery. Makes sense for that to be a parkland. Makes sense for that to have green grass. And it doesn't look wrong, does it? We see it on TV. It's probably greener than it might naturally be, but yep. it doesn't look wrong no, to they, be green. I mean, they, ha- they now have rough. When I was there a long time back, they had no rough. It was just all known as fairway, which is terrific. Um, but, but what I hate seeing is um, American events on television where – You've got a bunch of green grass, and the week before the tournament or a couple of weeks it would have been mown as fairway, and now it's bright green rough. So on a par three, you've got a tee, acres of this bright green rough, then a little slither of fairway that's green, and then a green that's green. And they go, oh, my God, that just looks so bad. I mean, getting back to colour. Yes, sorry. Um... One of my best mates um, married an American girl, 1976, and he's lived there since. So every couple of years, we catch up and go somewhere to play golf, normally in Britain. And when we were playing out here, we'd go to the Sandbelt, for example, and I distinctly remember Kingston Heath. You'd stand on the first tee, and if the first green looked green, not going to play. If the first green looked orangey-brown... Yep, we'll play. Wow. I mean, you do not want lush green on green surfaces, particularly something like the Melbourne Sandbelt. Um, when we first started playing Royal Melbourne, you would look straight down on the greens. When you're standing on the green, you look straight down and you'd see brown. Mm-hmm. There was so little grass, just enough grass to hold the surface, and it was brown. It didn't look brown from a distance. It looked a sort of a light shade of greeny, greeny, greeny yellowy brownie. something. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's when greens look great. I don't, a, a light grey green sort of colour. I mean, but d- dark green, oh my God. No. I think the Melbourne Sandbelt <clears throat> is, in terms of contrast and colour, the most beautiful golf on the planet when it's at its best. Yeah. Royal Melbourne, when it's at the President's Cup, it was almost overwhelming the senses just how magnificent it looked. Yeah. Almost too good to play golf on, ironically. That was interesting. I'd taken a group of American people there a couple of years before and it was underwhelming. Mm-hmm. Um, we played a group of courses, including mine at the National, and um, they were not impressed by 
rural Melbourne, but it didn't look like that. And then when I saw it during the President's Cup, I thought, wow, this is back to being exactly what you were talking about. Yeah. Um, and it's got to be like that. I mean, it's the for, te- for international television, and <clears throat> on a tangent, it really hit the mark and did something really good for the game more broadly, that event, because people around the world were in raptures about the course and the way that it interacted with the players. So often in professional golf, we talk only about the players and the course as an afterthought. At Royal Melbourne, it was central to the narrative among the players and the spectators could see it as well. You must listen to the podcast I did with Richard Forsyth just before that on this very show thing about golf. It was really interesting. And he's a a really interesting – I imagine you know Richard. Fantastic fella. Yeah, terrific guy. But but that notion of the course being – the 157th player in any golf field yeah. is lost most weeks, I think. And when it is, when it comes to the four, it's special. Yep. I think. Well, the other thing about watching American tournaments in particular is the insistence on having barbed wire rough about a metre out from a green. Now, if it, if it, to me, that suggests that the course is badly designed if the only defence is to ring the green sites with rough you have to play that stupid flop shop from. Um, it's an amb- always an ambition of mine that on most green sites, you know, you might be very difficult along one side. Um, you've got a huge bailout area somewhere else. The bailout area is beautifully conditioned. You've got a perfect lie. But to at least some pin spots, you're now facing a really delicate, difficult little mm-hmm. chip or pitch. But this idea of just relying on um, that, that silly flop shot from just off a of green is a terrible thing. <clears throat> to me, that goes to the very heart of the question about what golf is and what do we want it to be. And there is an element of golf, and it's not insignificant, there's a portion of golfers whose belief is that the game should be a game of crime and punishment. So if two players miss the fairway by the same distance in the same spot, they should have exactly the same lie and chances of reaching or not reaching the green. And that's some of the golf you talk about. And that's ultimately a test of execution only, which is why it's often a brand of golf favoured by professionals, I think, because it tests execution. And to them, if we're playing for money, I absolutely understand it. If we're playing for a 1000 bucks and we both hit our ball 10 metres off the fairway, then why should I lose the 10000 because I got unlucky and drew a bad lie and you got a perfect lie? But that doesn't – that's not really golf, is it? To me, golf, there's a bit of luck, there's a bit of skill, there's a bit of thought, there's a bit of execution. It's a multifaceted game, which is why I prefer it to tennis or football or anything with lines. One reason to prefer it. Where the question it. is in or out. Yeah, <laughs> there are lots of reasons to prefer it. We'll get to there them, are. I guess. Yeah, we probably But will. the luck thing um, – <clears throat> One of the uh, one of the courses that comes to mind for discussion when when this topic comes up is Royal St George's. Mm-hmm. Have you been there? Right? I have. Yeah. Now that's a, there's a course that the American pros do not like. That might be putting it lightly, Bob. <laughs> yeah. yes. Nicholas led the charge. Yeah. Which, okay. tell, which tells you how good Royal St George's is. <laughs> there's the first clue that it's fantastic. Yeah, but it's really good. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I from. The first moment, I just loved that place. I mean, I think, think that is just fabulous. But luck does play a part. I mean, and the, forget that for the moment. Go, go back to two players in the, in the last 10, 15, 20 years. Tiger Woods 
is either the best or second best player ever. You could possibly argue he's the worst driver of a ball there's ever been on the PGA Tour. At times. At he's times. He's had other times where he's been a bit. At the same time, Phil Mickelson was a very prominent player as well. There's another guy who can put it 100 yards wide of the, the mark. Those guys were outrageously lucky. They had the skill to recover that maybe other players wouldn't have had from these terrible places, but so many times they finished in a spot that gave them at least a chance if you were good enough. Weighed against that, I remember seeing Craig Parry play um, the Open that... Um, Tanusti 99? Yes. With Vanderbilt? Yes, yeah. yes. I can't remember what happened. Something down the right-hand side of some hole where he got a yard off a fairway oh, you're and right got yeah. outrageously unlucky. I'm going to say it's, it was 14. Yeah, I, I can't think it took him two swipes to get it out from memory. Yeah. Anyway, it cost, you know, it cost him the... Cost him the, yeah. Yes. He had a but hand luck, on the jug at yeah, the time. Luck, luck is just... You can't take luck out of it. No. Um, and it's a bit like... So one of my favourite courses was the old Macri on the island of Isla, right next door to Jura, where my course is. And, you know, I don't know if you know this place, but it's come into prominence in recent years, and it's recently been redone. Now, it was redone by a, a Scottish professional golfer. He's a good mate of Huggins, I think. That's what, In my view, that's always a bad start. <laughs> <It's> a, <laughs> you've got a hurdle to overcome before I'm convinced. Is that, that's the, that's well, the well, thing I yeah, yeah, it's Yeah, I don't know why people assume... That if you're a, an excellent player of golf, you'll be an excellent um, designer of golf. Two things are different. Which, and I brought something along about that. I, I just want to read one thing to you, yeah, if it's okay. Well, this is good. This is our first reading on this podcast. This is excellent. Might, might be a segment I can introduce for all future guests. This, this is Mackenzie, mm-hmm. and this is what he said. He need not be himself a good player. He may have some physical disability which prevents him from being so, but... As the training of the golf architect is purely mental and not physical, this should not prevent him from being a successful golf course architect. In any case, the possession of a vivid imagination, which is an absolute essential in obtaining success, may prevent him attaining a position among the higher ranks of players. Now, I think that's interesting, and I agree with him, but um, a lot of what Mackenzie wrote and said was self-serving. And he never got I – th- I think I'm right in saying he never got to a handicap below 16. That would be my understanding as well. Yeah. Yes, he certainly wasn't a player of excellence, yeah. put it that way. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. No. Uh, no. <laughs> Coming from a fellow 16 marker, it's perfectly legitimate, Bob. Now, where do we get to – What do we? <laughs> you were talking about Macri being – Oh, yeah, up. yeah, Macri. Now, the original Macri is, was controversial. It's the most beautiful dunes land you ever saw. It's just the right dimension. Big enough and wild enough to be inspiring – not so overwhelming that you can't properly put golf holes through it. So just fantastic. Bunches of, of blind shots, but just the greatest fun to be. Mm-hmm. And we always used to vote at the best of all the courses we did every time we played in Scotland. But um, the reaction from a lot of the pros, oh, no, this is just terrible. It's luck and it's blind. and Bad bounces and hit a good shot. And it gets so they've a redone bounce. it and, and they've made it more rational. Right. Anyway, lots of people like it, so fine, good luck. But um, my my mates who've been to play at Ardfin three or four years back, but when it was only just done, wasn't even finished, um, we used to go to the Macri, but they won't go there again. So it's funny, isn't it, Bob, that there can be 
I suppose golf course architecture, it's a bit like art, isn't it? There's no wrong there's no wrong in it. In oh, as I'm much not sure as, about that. Well, no, in as one much example as, to come. <laughs> you're entitled to like it if you like it. Yes, I agree with that. It's just a personal opinion. And just because I don't like it doesn't mean that you shouldn't like it either. Now, like you were saying with music, there's a there's a clear level that the same courses always rise to the top <clears> in the bulk of opinions. But I recall distinctly Lee Westwood being asked once about the old course, and he said it wasn't in his top 200, and they said, in the world, and he said, in Fife. <laughs> so, and Lee Westwood, I, I, you could not argue about the playing of the game with Lee Westwood. He's a vastly superior to golfer to you or I could ever be. I oh, know. Look, opinions about golf courses are individual. There's yeah. no doubt about that, hmm. which is one of the – I mean, ranking systems, which is a, a, a topic that comes up a lot these days and it affects me. Well, it affects your business, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's, that's the point. You'd argue that they – I mean, they're obviously flawed mm-hmm. and you'd argue that they're you know, they're almost not worthwhile, but by God, they are. If you're Richard Sattler at Barn Boogle, and uh, it's crucial. and But they ask the variety of opinions you get mm-hmm. amongst them. I remember one years back on the Golf Australia um, panel. Which just came out, the top 100 just yeah, recently. Yeah, recently. There's a storm on the internet about it, which is – Oh, is there? Well, well, of course, there always is. But there always is, yeah. Wouldn't yeah. matter how you listed them. There will be a blow up from somebody about something. Oh well, I remember when I've been a member at the Australian for almost fifty years, and I never used to rank this. The, this is before the Nicholas changes, um, and I won't be any different now. Um, and the members would be horrified. Yeah, you, you belong to this club. How how can you not think it's the? Sec-? I said, well, hold on a second. Just because I belong to the club doesn't mean I have to think this is the best golf course in Australia. And you know what? I, I love being a member of this club. So, what do you think that says about all you guys? Um, but the ranking guys, it, it, there's such a variety, even amongst the rankers, of how things get perceived, and that's what you'd expect. Mackenzie mm-hmm. himself said it. Every man argues for his own patch. Oh, of oh, he was a great salesman, and as he should. Goodness me, <laughs> he was the apart from being good. He had good ideas, but he was the ultimate salesman. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was the. You'd argue he was the first to give. Equal attention to what a course looked like as to what it played like. Mm-hmm. And that was a really magnificent thing to do. And he, he relied um, to a great extent on who was actually doing the construction for him as to what it ended up being like. Um, he couldn't draw, which is really interesting. That just flabbergasted. Unusual too, isn't it? Uh, Most a, course designers have some artistic yeah, ability. Yeah, he couldn't draw. Um, but he did have good ideas. I'm not sure whether they all came from his um, creativity or whether some of them were inherited because of the circumstances of golf courses 100-plus years ago. What he could see was the importance of the visual and what he could see was that things look better in the line of sight than they do if they're spread. Mm-hmm. Was that a recognition of an artistic form, maybe? Or was it partly due to the fact that they put bunkers where... Um, well, no, he was doing new courses, so I've got to give him the credit. But when he started out, it might have been the fact that they used to put bunkers in places where they couldn't maintain the grass because all the balls were going there and being hit, or the sheep were hiding in the hole, whatever the heck it was. But now you've got to give Mackenzie the credit. Um, but in parallel with having that recognition and doing it well... 
My goodness, he could sell. I mean, anyway, good luck to him. Yeah. Life's about perception. If you can't sell, you can't win. No, it's about perception. You know, that's the better the salesman. Von Haggy's probably one of the great examples of a fantastic salesman yeah. um, that we spoke about. Anyway, let's just quickly go back. So you you ended up designing the Campbelltown Golf Club for people who might have played there at yep. Grinnell Pine there. People yep. who played there will know it. There's some really interesting holes there. What was that like as a start? Sometimes we say about golf professionals, you can win too early. You can have too much success too early. Is there any sort of parallel? Can you have too much success too early as a course? That's a hell of a way to start. There are some course architects who go a career without getting a greenfield site yeah. to put a golf course on. Well, uh, did it translate to much? Um, no, not to st- Well, partly because I got transferred within Lend-Lease to um, – uh, Civil and Civic, which was the flagship company of the Lendlease Corporation, in a section that did high-rise buildings and shopping centres. So this was meant to be a sort of a career path that was meant to be, you know, and for whatever reason it didn't work out. Some of them were personal. I don't regret it because I would hate to have missed out on having the career with... But do, the, the can thing can that, I just say on behalf of golfers, I feel we all might have thought that that was a bit of a waste had you ended up building shopping malls as opposed to golf courses, Bob. That's the truth of it. Um, when Campbelltown was first finished, it was pretty good. It was in great nick. It had been done properly. Over the years, it has been mutilated beyond recognition. There are now concrete creeks and all sorts of things have been done. The bunkers have been smashed to bits. It's just terrible. I, go, I, I thought three or four years back, that they might be going to redo it. It's still apparently a prospect. The, the Campbelltown Catholic Club have some sort of stake in it. And I, yeah, and I think um, at one point, one of the executives thought it would be worth competing with what was happening at Camden. But that, that appears to have gone away, so I'm not sure. But anyway, did it translate to any? Not really. I mean, the next thing that came along for me uh, <clears throat> was New Brighton. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> New Brighton came, so I was in the civil and civic thing for a number of years, and uh, doing no golf at all. No golf at all. Then New Brighton. Did, did that frustrate you? Did you have the having done a golf course? Were you now frustrated that you weren't getting to do more? Because clearly that was it's in your blood, I suppose, for want of a better term. Um, I can't remember. I mean, I was partly ambitious about where I was, and I, mm. I was partly not. So you sort of mid twenties. Oh, yeah, I was mid to late twenties. And, it's a time um, to build career and move uh, up and do yeah. all those things if you're going to have family. And I wasn't sure whether golf, you know, golf courses offered that prospect. Uh-huh. And they I mean, don't. That they, in hindsight, we'd have to say they don't. We know that. Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, how the heck the majority of, or a number of the people who are part of the society in Australia keep going, I don't know, because there's not that many jobs. There's 25 to 30 of people who are members of this thing. Um, anyway, so I ended up with, um, with New Brighton. And how did that come about? Was that, a, was that a Greenfield site? No, it would have been an existing club, yeah? Uh, it was existing club, and the M5 was taking away a number of holes. Right. Well, you mean just recently? No, 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 no. No, no this say. is in 19-whatever it was, 80-something. Right. Did you just redo the similar thing just a couple of years ago yep. at the same we'll, golf we'll get course? get to that. So right. okay. this involved, at the time, it involved nine new holes. Right. Um, and I think it was just the fact that the president at the time, Brian Sheehan, um, he must have played a fair bit at Campbelltown and thought, I'll get this guy. Okay. So it came like that. And the next step, and then, of course, all these years later, um, Mervac 
did a deal with the club to take all the holes on the above the flood on the hill, mm-hmm. and we've just finished doing nine new holes. A whole bunch of <laughs> so, yeah. so now I've got all eighteen holes. I was going to say, yes, yeah, so yeah. at least it wasn't your original nine that got punted. No, so yeah, <laughs> you've worked around. I've, the same. I've got all but one. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> with a bit of luck, the the, the club. I mean, there's now a mismatch between the holes that have just been finished, the style on the, the greens and whatnot, and uh, the others are rolled. So there's a fairly good chance that with time, the club will want to revamp the other holes as well, the early holes. Um, and then to uh, the long yard at, at Tamworth. Tamworth. Mm-hmm. When did you meet well, Greg and that's where this North. came from. Yeah. Um, and how did that happen? Yeah, well, it was to do with the long yard. Uh, I was working for the Tamworth Country Centre and one of the projects was the golf course plus surrounding real estate. And that's been a pattern throughout my career. Um, there were other projects as well. There was the Long Yard Hotel, Big Guitar. There was going to be a retirement village and whatever else. And we got part. We got nine holes constructed. The other nine holes had been planned but not the detailed design done. And we needed marketing clout. What do we do? Uh, well, we get somebody attached to the project. Somebody famous. So, surprisingly, I guess, it started for me with Sevi. Oh. I can't think of the fellows, you might know him, the fellow who was Sevi's manager way back um, played at Kingswood in Melbourne. Oh, and didn't now know that. Jim, 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 Jim. I can't think of his name. He's now a member at the National. Um, so I approached him. And we had a couple of meetings with Seve in Sydney, and that looked like it was going to go somewhere, and I can't remember why it didn't. We could have had a Seve course in Tamworth. I'm sure the irony of that's not lost on you all these years later, Bob. So um, having got to a, um, a dead end then, um, well, let's approach Norman. How do we do that? We go to YMG. Had he done anything in golf course design to that point? Um, I don't think so. What he had done, or, or did this come later? I'm not quite sure. He did something with Ted Robinson, American guy in Hawaii, but I think that was just a branding thing. It was, I don't think it was, I'm not sure. It wasn't his own company. It was um, some sort of something. So um, two of the IMG guys, Graham Hannon and James Erskine, came up to Tamworth. They had a look at what had been going on. Um, thought, okay, this is all right. We'll, we'll see if we can get Norman to agree. And it was round about the t- I didn't know this at the time, but it was round about the time that they were trying to convince Norman and Laura to get into this business. Course design. Um, you know, Japan was jumping. Because it was all real estate development, of yep. course, at the time. Big money. Loads, well, uh, really, loads of money. Yeah, the stuff in Japan was huge money. I mean, there was a course down the road from the one that we ended up doing, a, a Nicholas course that cost two hundred and seventy million US to build. Wow! To build a golf wow. course, and they sold three hundred memberships at a million bucks each or some bloody thing. I don't wow. know what it was, but they yeah. they got out of it anyway. So <clears throat> they were trying to get Norman into this business. He'd been resisting, um, you know, to favour playing. Yep. It's a fairly uh, full-time job, that, playing on the PGA Tour and trying to win majors, isn't it? You don't need too many distractions. i got a theory about that. Okay. Well, and I'm, I can talk to you about that. Yeah. I don't think it's not disparaging in any way. It's okay. just my personal opinion. Um, I'll give it to you now. Okay. Uh, 48 weeks of the year, um, Norman would be distracted all over the place seven days of the week and thrived on it. 
four weeks of the year, the rules changed and you weren't allowed to bring any business things or arrange meetings or whatever the heck. Now, that would work for some people. It would probably work for the sort of personality Nicholas is, but it's just my personal opinion that that didn't work for Greg Norman. So you mean the four weeks being the major weeks? I think he would have been better off just doing what he normally did and being distracted all over the place. Oh, during the major, as opposed to doing away with the distraction 48 weeks, include the distraction the other four. Yep, that's what I mean. Yep. That's just a personal okay. opinion. That, well, you'd know him. Yep. Well, certainly better than me and better than most, having seen him up close. And that's anyway, so that's he, an interesting idea. Yeah, he came up to. Um, he came to. Um, How big a deal was he at this time, Bob? Was he the Greg? Well, obviously, he went on to become something. What year with two was majors, this? But this was. Well, it was 80s? the it was the year after. No, it was two years after he'd led all four majors on the right. Last so day. he's big. It was eighty eight. Right. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And he's in Tamworth. Came to Tamworth. Wow. Went over the nine holes. Okay. That was fine. Um, that got sort of done, that deal. It never actually went ahead. I ended up doing it myself years later for different reasons. Um, and then it turned out that IMG was successful in convincing them to get into this business. Okay. Who, who will we get to do the doing? Oh, we might as well get that guy that bought, right, okay. bought Tamworth in the, yep. in the door. So that's how it And that's happened. how it happened. That's how it happened. Do you recall when you first met him? Did you did you get along? Did you have similar ideas about? You must have talked about golf. You've got a guy who trots around the world playing golf for huge sums of money. You must have talked about the game and some of your thoughts about it. Did you click um, with him at any level immediately? Uh, yes. I mean, when I first got involved with Norman, all my mates and I were, were, um, were fans and we'd watched the last day of a majors mm. in the hope of seeing him win. General principles, I think, or ideas, um, were fine. Um, I don't think I could have had a career if it had meant working with Jack Nicholas, because I wouldn't have agreed with any of it sort of thing. The, 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 the general idea. I mean, I got lucky in Greg Norman Design Australia because he was actively playing golf. He was living in America. So I had a fair bit of autonomy. Uh-huh. I mean, you could argue in a, in a corporation it's not a good idea to be away from the seat of power, but in this case, it, it meant that I had the chance. Um, and it's an unusual business in that way, isn't it? I mean, yeah. It, I mean, he's it, playing golf. He couldn't... Uh, no. And it, I came to the, to the party with a bit of a background in it and the capacity to draw it and so on. So, um, and, you know, look, I'm eternally grateful for that because... That was the best job going, mm-hmm. and it got me into projects like Elliston and Nuana Bali and Moona at the National that I would probably not have got into by myself, almost certainly not. Mm-hmm. So I'm, you know, I'm thankful for that. Yeah. Um, I'm not thankful for the fact that um, it is still difficult with a part of the media that, to get them to acknowledge that um, my part, which was the major part, mm-hmm. in the design of these projects, that part I think is pretty outrageous. Why do you think that is, Bob? Are you talking mainstream media or golf media? Because they are two separate things. There's a certain segment of the media that should know better if they're not, which no, is us in the golf, golf media, media I'm talking about. Right. Yeah. And um, do you think that – where do you think that comes from? <sighs> oh, no, I've got to be careful now. <laughs> I don't want you to get yourself in trouble, but no, do you I, have uh, a – is there animosity there? No. There are arrangements 
Um, so of course, the difficulty And in is- Queensland, there's, uh, for example, there's just a, a Queensland thing to want to believe that Greg Norman did all the design. So I think that's just a particular part of it. I might be wrong about that. But look, this is not an overall thing. A lot, no, of, no, no. a lot of people do give. Of course, you know, uh, your, your record speaks for itself. To anybody who yeah. knows anything oh, uh, about the industry, knows all too well. Your and to his great, to his great credit, Tom Ramsey used to do it the other way around. He used to call them Harrison Norman <laughs> crosses. <laughs> he would have done that just for the sport of seeing yep. Rick's face every time he <laughs> managed to come across, yeah. because that's what uh, what Tom was like. Was that a good time in your life? Did you enjoy? That I suppose it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? You, as you say, you're getting to work on amazing sites and do some amazing stuff, but it comes at a cost of what you're still feeling, where you don't get the credit for no, much of what you did look, in all no, in all sorts circles. While I was there, by and large, that wasn't the motivation. I mean, I was just interested in doing these projects as mm-hmm. well as I could, and they were good fun. They were, they were very interesting projects. Um, no, this is just something that. Sometimes happens now, yeah. uh, that, that, and you know, so be it. Um, but it, you know, the, the, the I had twenty two years there, and as I said, I'm very thankful for that opportunity. It was the best thing you, you could have got. Um, the level of enjoyment gradually waned, mm-hmm. and wasn't very good at the end. No, and the end wasn't very good. No, the end was awful, wasn't it? Yeah. Um. So there you are. The, life though isn't it Bob it's yeah and, it's, and we're talking first world problems as well which we all acknowledge aren't we you know yeah, it's like yeah. it's like missing short parts oh god yes yeah yeah no, no, <laughs> I agree the I'd importance say. of it ultimately is yeah. huge but personally there's yeah. yeah what was Greg like to work with for did you well, get to know him did you feel oh yes I mean I spent a reasonable amount of time with him I wasn't strictly in the in crowd um but it's a, a reason, different world isn't it yeah and, and I was actually glad not to be strictly in the in crowd. Yeah. Um, but uh, by and large, the general philosophy around golf was about the same. Um, so you weren't fighting an uphill battle overall. He you, talks the talk, well, Royal Melbourne, St Andrews, and I think he gets those things in, innately, what makes them interesting. I, that's what I feel from the outside. Um, and, you know, by and large, I mean, I used to do the plans for these things. And sometimes you go through half a dozen or more, 10 different alterations before you get to something you think, well, this is about right. At which point it will be staked in the ground. And at some point on most projects, uh, I'd then review with Norman. Um, and then sometimes things would be, uh, you know, two or three or four things might get tweaked or not. And um, then I'd proceed to do the greens and the shaping and the construction and away it went. So it was good for me because, as I said, um, being remote helped. Mm-hmm. Um, that autonomy, as you said. Yeah. Mm. Uh, the temptation from outside, Bob, is to assume, and it's an easy criticism to make a little bit like what we talked about before, it's very easy to bash America. The reality of America is that it's got the absolute best and the absolute worst of everything, and it's about what you focus on. Pine Valley is not a bad ad for golf. Yeah, no, I agree with that. There's I, an I, awful lot of golf in America yeah. that's not a bad ad for the game. In fact, it's some of the very best golf in the world. The temptation in the architecture world is to say, well, the touring professional simply attaches his name to an architecture business to get some money, 
and has nothing to do with, or if they do have something to do with what goes in the ground, it's inherently bad. That seems a little simple to me. What Were there times when Greg contributed something on the ground that you thought, wow, that's a big improvement that I hadn't seen? Or In terms of... of um tweaking the layout of some of these courses. I When I said when they were staked, um, yes, indeed, yes. Um, and it varied. Sometimes it was very small, sometimes it was small. Um, and yes, looking back on it, I can see that in a number of cases, um, there was a little bit at the National, and that was good. Um, although we lost on the crossover hole, but we were always going to lose that, and I'm glad we did. Um and there was some at Elliston, most of which was – this is just my opinion. Yeah, yeah, of course. Most of which helped. Um, by and large, thereafter – I mean, Norman would catch these projects once or twice during their during their life because, yeah, he was travelling all around the world and playing. So, by and large um, – the greens and whatnot got left with me, and the, so it went. Um, later down the track, it became more difficult. Um, I'm not sure, not sure of the motivation, uh, but it became a little bit more of a contest. Mm. which wasn't always easy, but there you no. go. <laughs> well, for someone who spends their whole life competing, not just like you and I compete in the Wednesday comp, but seriously competing, I imagine that's a habit that becomes hard to break. It's often said of Tiger Woods he'd compete with you over drinking a glass of water should you challenge him. <laughs> that's the way these people are wired, isn't it, I suppose? Yeah. yeah. No, it just got more that way a bit. But yeah. anyway, look, as I said, overall... Do you feel it came to its natural conclusion, that relationship? We. Uh, for those who don't know, obviously, the, the, the GFC hit in 2008 and the office here in Sydney was closed quite abruptly, uh, which wasn't particularly pleasant, I assume. Well, that's my understanding. No, of, it of wasn't closed in 2008. Eight, uh, sorry, when was it? I left in 2009. Nine. And, and they went for another year. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, it was around that time and projects were shrinking and there wasn't I think, much work. Well, I'm, you know, I can't answer the question, really. There was still a very big market in Asia. I wasn't keen to spend most of my life continuing to go to Asia. I mean, I went there during the heyday. I went there probably four to five hundred times. Wow, um, that's a big commute, Bob. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. well, whereas weight against that, going to Scotland to build the course at Ardfin, I I went twenty eight times and loved every, <laughs> every second. Wish it had been twenty nine. Every second of it. Yeah. I'd love to get back there, and I hope to get back there this year. Explain to people what Ardfin is. This is a, a project um, of yours that's particularly interesting, not dissimilar in some ways to Elliston, I yeah. imagine. It, it's a, it's a, it started life as a private golf course for Greg Coffey. Now, people in the financial industry will know him as the Wizard of Oz. He's an Australian guy. He's an Australian guy. He went to Christian Brothers uh, St. Pat's Strathville uh-huh. and then to Macquarie University. Worked a little bit at Macquarie Bank, got into the fund business himself, and then went to Britain and started the whole thing again, and he's known as the Wizard of Oz. Retired at 40 or 39, and um, amongst other things, bought a 15,000-acre estate <clears throat> on the island of Jura. Coffee's 
is on the bottom. His uh, project Ardfin is on the bottom end of the island, the south end. So it's a little bit protected from the open Atlantic. Above him are the Vesties, the Astors. Um, there's all these people that mm-hmm. you know got a yeah. lot of money. And at the very top end of the island, there's a farm called Barn Hill. And to get to this, there's only one. There's only one road on Jury. You come off the ferry, and this three metre road winds all the way round and climbs up the east side of the island. It just goes past the gate of each estate. You turn off where you want to go. Yeah, a tiny little village with a wow. couple of buildings. It used, to, it used to have a population, if you go back a couple of hundred years, it had a population of two to 3,000, uh-huh. and now it's about 200, wow. 200 to 240. Wow. Uh, it's the least inhabited place in Europe, and it's wild beyond belief. It's the most magnificent place. I already want to move there. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, you, go to, you, you climb up this road, it stops at a dead end at a... At a a state called Ardlusa, and then there's a five-mile track that you've got to walk, and you get to this, or you can go in a rugged four-wheel drive, and you get to this farm called Barn Hill, and that's where George Orwell wrote 1984. Wow. Uh, going back to 1947, I think it was. Yeah. So it, it's it's the most unbelievable place. So we've got 15,000 acres on this estate. Oh, I'll tell you how I got I got into this. So it's I was in the office in Sydney about nine o'clock one night and I got a, a call on mobile phone and the voice at the other end said, um, you don't know me, I'm Greg Coffey, I'm a fellow Australian, um, I've bought an estate in Scotland, I want a bit of a golf course, it's going to be a private golf course. I looked up Elliston because that's another private course. It says that Greg Norman designed it, that can't be right, <laughs> it must be you. That's exactly what he said to me. <laughs> Did you think it was one of your mates well, prank, pranking This you? is exactly what happened. So we keep going, and he said he didn't bother telling me where it was because he said, yeah, you won't know where this place is. very remote. So we keep talking for a bit, and I said, well, come on, tell me where it is. Well, it's the island of Jura. You're not going to believe this, but I've been coming next door to play golf for the last 10-plus years at the Macri. And then it dawned on me, just what you were saying. I said, hold on a second, who, who is this really? Who is this really? Because I thought, this is one of my mates winding me up. Yeah. Next morning, I got a, an email. Not not one of your mates winding you up. This is real. That was on a Tuesday night. I was wow. on. I was on Jura on the Saturday. Wow! Had dinner with him that night, and he rang personally. You assume these people have minions no, he to rang, do this stuff. Well, he does now, but he just retired from the um, the fund business, and um, the infrastructure that is now there to look. He's got. Development projects in different places and estates in different places and different things going on. Um, so he, he now does have a staff that looks after things. Retirement looks very different for some, doesn't it, Bob? Yeah. <laughs> so I go and meet him and I have no idea whether he talked to anybody else. I have no idea how he came to think that the fee I proposed to him was reasonable, but it was done. So <clears> you, <throat> you went there, you saw the thing, you said, this is what I'd do, and he said... Well, I didn't, I didn't quite say that. Um, so we, we go around the site while we're there. Was it obviously golf ready? Some sites are too windy. Some of those sites in Scotland can be well. It's, it's windy. It's windy. There's no doubt about that. Um, but most of Scottish seaside's windy. It's not overly so, mm-hmm. and it is a little bit protected by being on the southern end of this island. So, and you've got a bit of island to protect you as well. And the open Atlantic is above that. Um, we went around the site, and he, he had ideas. That is sometimes it's really <laughs> difficult. 
what do you do? You don't know this. You just met this bloke. Yeah. So you're not quite sure how to handle it. You want the job. You want the job. You can't necessarily agree with the ideas. Mm-hmm. You can't tell him he's an idiot. Yet. <laughs> no, and he wasn't. I mean, I'm not suggesting he was. But he did. But here's the thing. The estate has about 10 to 15 kilometres <clears throat> of direct ocean front. Cliffs and beaches and oh, it's just unbelievable. Um, <clears throat> and he owns seven islands as part of this estate. Right. And the estate also owns the only village that's got any – of the 220-odd people that live there, 200 live in this one little village, uh-huh. and he owns most of that. So um, he, he sort of walks me around, and the islands are a couple of hundred metres, and they're only small. One of them's small, one of them's a bit bigger, and one over here. And, and he said, well, what about a hole that goes from here across the ocean to there? But there was about five times the size of this room, and that was a green, and the carry's about 200 metres. I'm thinking, boy, <laughs> boy you, can't, you can't really do that. <laughs> anyway, so we go through this process. I mean, astonishingly beautiful, but sort of unsuitable for golf because even though it's along all these cliffs and down to beaches and whatnot. Oh, now getting back to the island, so – yeah, so you've got Coffee's this, got this, this idea that you go out on a boat. You know, island hop. But he was, he was at pains to tell me, he said, look, please really do tell me if these ideas aren't right. Mm-hmm. And eventually I said to him, you know what, Greg? This is so fantastic that you don't even need to think about stuff like that. I mean, and we went around all the little bits and pieces of the cliffs and the curves in them and the little headlands and whatnot. Mm-hmm. You forget that. You've you got one of the great sights in the history of golf which it is, but physically not suitable because it's all rock and peat. Mm-hmm. So the construction of it was incredibly difficult. And we got very lucky with that. We got the Irish company called Sol, who do all of um, Trump's work. Okay. So they did Trump Aberdeen. They did Turnbury. Mm-hmm. They've done a lot of stuff. And um, they had a lot of get up and go, and nothing was too much trouble. And they, okay. and they did it. How long did it? When was it? Fin- how long did it take to do? And when was it finished? It took six years. Yeah. Projects take a long time these not days. A- it didn't. Not six years to do. Um, people sort of think that don't know much about golf. Why well, you're designing a golf course? You build a golf course. You've done it. You've done it in six months. The approval process here. Well, first of all, the planning took about a year. The approval process took two and a half years. Um, the course itself. To build is the most logistically difficult thing you ever heard of. The <clears throat> the gravel and the sand came by ship from Ireland. It came to the only dock at this little village I talked about. Got unloaded on the dock. One set of machine machines took it down the, the wharf and dumped it again. Another lot picked it up, put it in trucks that took it up this three three meter road to the site. Then it got dumped in stockpiles and then distributed. The the turf grass came from Yorkshire. Wow. So it came up from Yorkshire by truck, up Loch Lomond, down the Kintyre Peninsula, and then you catch the Calmac ferry from the Kintyre Peninsula to Isla, and then the small ferry between Isla and Jura. And the problem with all of that is that the distilleries on Isla take up all the truck movements. So you have to book things six months in advance. Oh, wow. They could only get two truck movements per week to do the grass. So that was a limiting factor as to how fast you could build this golf course. And how many trucks of grass did you need? Oh, and two a week? Oh, no, more than that. No, 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 no. No, so how many did you need? Oh, oh I, I can't remember what the number was. A thousand, mate. Yeah, it so was big. 
500 was, weeks. It, it was big. Um, now, that was the, the grass, that was for <clears throat> the surrounds of the greens, the greens and the tees. And the contractors chose to put turf on these because they figured if they did it with seed, they were at risk from the weather. Blowing away. So it was their call, but that, this was the, the difficult process of getting this done. To get um, bulldozers across from Isla to Jura on the little car ferry, the blades of the bulldozers wouldn't fit. So they had to cut them off. I mean, it's just the most astonishingly difficult thing to do wow. to get this course built. Um, but a pleasing result. I mean, very so, so, is it, Was it worth it? Was it worth it? <laughs> you look back now. Well, it's, it, it'll be interesting to see what happens. There's a lot of people think it'll make the world top 20, mm-hmm. but we need a lot of... We need a lot of the ranking guys to see it between now and two years from now. Uh-huh. So that I think that's getting organised. And thankfully... Um, and it'll be open for public play? That's the it's, idea? It's now open for play. This was another problem. It's been ready for a couple of years, mm-hmm. but it, it, nobody was playing um, because the coffees hadn't made up their mind what their operation model would be. They now have. There were two... There are two big old buildings connected to this. There's the house that they have, which was Jura House. Essentially, it was the biggest house on the island. The Campbells owned it for hundreds of years. And uh, they were the lairds of... Oh, they owned all of... At one stage, they owned all of Jura. Right, wow. They they were the lairds of the place. Um, This stone building got completely reworked and doubled in size. That's now the coffee's place. The farm buildings where my friend Willie, who's the factor, the manager, he and I became good friends over the six years that it took to do this. The farm buildings got taken down stone by stone and then put back up and reworked as a lodge. That lodge is now going to be open for business. So you can go and stay there. They did a trial last year and they worked out a few things and now they did a number of trials and they've got bookings for this year and then that'll flow on. To play on the course, you've got to stay in the lodge. Mm Mm-hmm. It's a bit like um, Beach. Loch Lomond used to be. Pebble Beach used to be. What a it's a mind-boggling project to be involved in, Bob. At every step of the way, from the, from the original phone call right through to, I imagine the last time you saw it and said, "Well, it's now ready to be played." That's a that's a that's an emotional journey and a professional journey, I imagine, all in one. Well, I'm tr- I'm trying to find reasons to go back, <laughs> and I'll continue to do that. Yeah. Um, I've got to say that, I mean, I love Scotland anyway. I don't know how many times I've been to Scotland. <clears throat> but this place is my favourite in Scotland. And in fact, for a while I thought, you know, this is my favourite place in the world. Mm. And it still possibly is. Weather's not always favourable, but oh my God, it's a great place. I think we can safely say this is probably a bit more than a golf course project in, in hindsight. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. So. And to be part of that community for that period of time, to, to a limited extent, just terrific. Was it similar to Elliston, which was also a wealthy individual who wanted a course at that – well, Ardfans uh, ended up being a public thing. Well, Elliston was, was always only for a very small field of potential players. A couple of similarities. I mean, first of all, you're dealing with the owner. Who's used to getting his own way, it has to be Although, said. Well, actually, that's not quite right. In Greg Coffey's case, he won't mind me saying this, very early in the process, I got a call. Can you be on – Jura in two days. Yes. Why? And his wife, Anya, was concerned. She's not a golfer. But here they were in this beautiful um, site. 
was this project going to detract from it? Ruin it. Mm. Yep. And you know what? I totally agree with her. And I'm almost really pleased that she did do this. So I went and the three of us spent two or three days just going over the whole thing as to how it would be approached. And um, we were all on the same sheet. So that, that, that was true. I mean, from our point of view, from my point of view, first of all, you want to respect the environment. That, that's partly why I get upset about these processes. Mm-hmm. And secondly, it's certainly to the advantage of a great golf course if you've got an inspiring landscape to drop your course into it, not to change the nature of what you've been given, but to make it look as if this golf course is 100 years old and you were lucky to find the, you know, and it wasn't quite like that, but it now looks like that. If you, if you have a look at it now, it looked complete on day one. And it has preserved all the areas. I mean, it's a, it's a drop in the ocean of where this thing goes. I guess the fundamental question there, Bob, is does golf belong everywhere? I watch the desert swing on the US tour of the professional events and I can't help but be confronted every time by the sight of golf courses in desert. It makes no sense to me as a golfer. You can't imagine how the outside world must view. So that fundamental question, does golf belong everywhere? I wonder whether as golfers we ask that question often enough. Does golf, Just because somebody wants to build golf here, does that mean golf belongs here? Not sure of the answer. The the desert you're talking about, I assume, is the Californian one. Um, oh, oh, no, 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 the Arizona Arizona. One. The Arizona yeah, one. We see all that um, swing there. Look, I guess the answer would be if, if a golf course imposes unreasonably on natural resources such as water, then probably the answer is no, it shouldn't be. Is there anything wrong with a golf course in that sort of environment if it doesn't cause environment? Conceptually, just as a concept. Conceptually, no, I don't have a problem. Um, I would practically, I would um, politically, or whatever the word is, um, if it was causing great problems. Would Uluru or the pyramids be enhanced by having a golf course no, no, next take, to them? I take your point. <laughs> I take your point, though. It, it's um, more complex than just a. It's, there's not a binary answer, is there, of yes or no? But I guess I feel like golf doesn't think about these questions from the other side no. almost ever. We always only think about it in terms of the golf, and we think if you can build a spectacular golf course, that's the only hurdle you need to jump over as to whether or not you should. And, and you're right, if you're in my business, you tend to be motivated more by that sure. than, the, than the opposite. And that, that's um, as it should be. Yeah. Um, the answer to your question, I'm not sure of the answer. Probably there are circumstances where you shouldn't have golf. Here's the trade-off. A lot of the new courses that, that are now world famous are done in fantastic ground. And there are guys who can do those things well in fantastic ground. Hopefully I'm one of those too. Um but if you look at, say, the history of what I've been involved with in Australia, oftentimes you are working with horrendous ground. Mm-hmm. Now, now, for example... By design. <laughs> they give you the worst yeah, ground yeah, in I mean, real estate development. And in a way, that's, that's really good. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not quite as much fun 
working on, take the, um, the glades, for example, a dead flat site. There were about four or five trees before we started. They were camphor laurels, so they had to be knocked down. The council insisted that they get knocked, knocked down. <laughs> That's part of the deal. So there you go. Got no trees. The only way to make that was in the floodplain of the Narang River, and the only way you can satisfy the authorities that you are able to do something that acknowledges flood, the movement of flood and the storage of flood, is to draw half-metre contours over the entire site to demonstrate that your flood modelling, the ups and downs of your volumes, um, are going to give a result that satisfies them that you haven't stuffed. Because if you muck around with a floodplain and you uh, impose on it, then it just means that more flood water goes somewhere else. That's right. Water doesn't disappear, does it? It just goes. And there's trouble for other people. So it's a very big exercise to have to do that, but a very interesting one. And then you go ahead and you shape the entire thing, and then you you grass it and landscape it and irrigate it and all the rest of it, and you end up with something that is infinitely better than the dead flat piece of ground that had nothing going for it that you started from. So there are trade-offs in this. Mm -hmm. Um, The rubbish tip that gets turned into the local council golf course makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? As it does with sporting fields and other things. I can certainly see the sense in that. Now, now take um, the argument at Ardfin, Europe. Um, When the coffee's bought the estate, the 15,000-acre estate, most of it is wild, um, but they had farmland along the coastal strip. They didn't want to farm. Okay, what do we do with it? And that's where the idea of a golf course came from. Now, if you're starting with farmland and you're turning that into a golf course that isn't irrigated, only the greens are, greens and teas are irrigated, you're essentially leaving it in a similar form to what it was. Not, it's not a huge leap from farmland and pa- to golf. And part of our approval process said that it had to be done in such a way that it could be converted back to farmland at some point in the future. At a heartbeat, if needs yep. be. Okay. Is that, and is that a fair constraint to put on a You know what? Board? It wasn't a constraint at all. Right. Um, just the way it was. Yeah. Um, I, I just think everybody had the wrong – I mean, maybe understandably. They they thought we were going to come in and smash the place to pieces. So, Which has happened, Bob. We know which, that that's oh, yeah, happened, which happened in a lot of places. And yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's and, happened. And yeah. I guess that's what I always come back to. Golf needs to deal with it. First, we need to accept – that golf hasn't always been right or been done right, yeah. and then we need to work to educate. And it's a—it's actually the perfect example of what you're talking about, what you came up against in Scotland there. How do we educate those people whose initial stance is golf is wrong, that in fact that's an unreasonable thing to think, and that because golf has all sorts of positive impacts on the community beyond the use of the land. We're going to use land for something. It's either going to have buildings, it's going to have parks, or it's going to have sporting fields. And golf's got a case to make to be a part of that mix. Absolutely. I mean, golf involves a lot of fringe between grass and um, and bush and trees. Mm-hmm. That's great for bird life. It's fabulous corridors for bird life. Golf is really good as a safety barrier for fire. Golf's good as maintain green open space in urban areas. Um, golf's good for other reasons too. T- take, for example, what's happening in Sydney. I mean, I think Clover Moore's trying to close um, 
Moore Park. Nine holes. Nine holes. So somebody showed her a headline that says the moving golf is towards nine holes, and she's read that as, great, let's have nine holes at Moore Park and take it back for, I'm not sure what she wants to do with it, but. Well, I think she wants to make it park. Isn't it already park? Uh, Look, you can argue, you can see the argument for totally open access, but the counter-argument is that that golf course has something like 50 or 60,000 rounds of of golf each year. And that that maintained open space, um, you know, the beauty of it and whatnot, is paid for by the golfing operation. Well, that's my understanding of it. I might mm-hmm. be wrong with that. Uh, does golf need to learn to share, Bob? I think it does. Yeah. Um, um, take Ardfin in Ge- Scotland and Scotland in general. People have the right... To ramble. To Rome. A ramble it, it, it's a, uh, or whatever, it's a ramble Rome. Right to Rome. Rome, yep. And that means that on the golf courses of the British Isles, you've got the right to go walking on those things. A lot of them are suitable for it because they're on massive areas of, I mean, a place like St George's on a huge area of dunes. Um, Ardfin is part of a 15,000 acre estate. In actual fact, what we've done is we've linked the most difficult little gorge areas along the cliffs in such a way that if you're a, a Roma walker, you now have the capacity to walk along you've, green you've grass and across the cliffs, and, and people are entitled to do that. Yeah. So that interaction is really good. We get asked this question, we have done on lots of projects back here, but there's difficulties with it, or there can be. A lot of the courses that I've been involved with here, not all, but a lot of them have been a combination of, of real estate and golf. Those doing the real estate are obviously hoping that you can make that area as big as possible. So it's a contest and the golf course mm. as small as possible. But there are reasonable dimensions. You know, I mean, you're obviously aware that over the last 15, 20 years in America, all sorts of things have gone wrong. There have been court cases and uh, golf courses closed and or holes changed, and it's happening out here too. You have to be very careful about the dimensions that you allow um, once you've done such a thing. So here's your plan, and fortunately, you know, golf likes the low-lying areas around gullies and creeks and whatnot, not all the time, but most of the time, and fortunately, real estate l- likes being on hills looking over that. So that, that part works Probably well, out of reach of wayward golf balls. But you want the dimensions to be... <laughs> now, course. you're not required to stop all balls going over, but you're required to achieve a reasonableness. Having got a plan that you think does that, now you're asked, can you make this thing walkable for outside people? Where? Um, that's the problem. Where can you do such a thing safely? Mm-hmm. Now, because the irony is, it does work in Scotland, and people wander across the old course all day, every day, across Glenic yeah. Clark's Wine to get to the beach. Well, I think a, a lot of those courses are old, mm-hmm. so there's and, an understanding of well, that's no, it, there. It's, it's more than that. They were done on big areas of land, right. bigger and, than what we're talking. And there's a fi- not everywhere, but there's a degree of safety mm-hmm. that you wouldn't have if you tried to put a walking trail through, say, Stonecutters Ridge. Um. And the, and the problem is going to be that the owner of the land, the overall owner of the projects, don't want to give up another, whatever it might be, 20 metres of land to, to make this thing work because now all of a sudden the, 
you know, the balance of costs and income and Housing, time yeah. and all the rest of it. So, it, look. I suppose I think more about public go- golf. Yeah, standalone golf courses are different. I mean, I think the planning, the future planning of those might well have to incorporate that, and that makes some sense. I agree with that. Yeah, we can fly to the moon. Surely we can yeah, learn absolutely. to share the space. It's absolutely, not- yeah. Where you don't have a constraint on on space, an absolute constraint on space, then you've got a chance of doing such things. Yeah, but where you do, have, you know, what will the future golf courses be? Well, it's hard to tell. Uh, are we going to see more of the the golf and real estate combination? Not on the evidence at hand at the moment. Not right at the moment. Um, you know, what's the... Well, we're involved now with three projects, or three or four projects, where clubs were in trouble and had to find a way out. And the way out to is a developer comes along and offers them a proposal. You know, I'm going to take part of your you land. Sell some land. Here's what I'm going to do. No, you don't sell it. Oh. Here's, here's what I'm going to do. And you work up... a you know, and in the case of Muirfield, it's three, three to three hundred and fifty units. Uh, the golf course gets changed a bit; it's a bit shorter. You lose a bit of ground. In return for that, everything gets redone: um, all the greens, all the bunkering, irrigation, grass, the whole shebang, and um, and you get an, an income. Now, the smart people are not selling things outright which is what clubs used to do. That's they, right. They used to have one or two blocks of ground, and you'd sell the one or two blocks of ground, and now you're okay for however many years. years. or 20 years. Yeah, or, or less. Or less. And then you're gone. Then you come back to the same place without the asset to sell. Yeah. What's happening more now is um, doing a deal with developers where you get a certain amount of money to do whatever you need to your course, whether that's new holes or changing old ones or whatever it is, and you also get an income stream that's guaranteed. So like an ongoing rental arrangement. Yep. Sort of thing. And a good one. Yeah. I mean, so for example, we're involved. And then there's a, another, I mean, Townsville's a bit different to that because they were in trouble and they had 27 holes. And years back, we redesigned the 27 holes to be 18 plus real estate. As they've sold the real estate, they've been able to rebuild this brand new golf course, essentially. And it, it's almost done now, which is great. And there's one that will really get some attention. It's a funny thing. You want to give, if you're in my business or if you're me, you want to give your very best to every project. Mm-hmm. But you don't always start out with the, with the hope that this thing's going to be exceptional. Not all are. Of course not. That one, I'm not sure what I thought it would be like to start with, but it's actually pretty good. So I don't know how many people will ever get to see Townsville. But see, this is the interesting thing about the golf design business. You sort of want to design so that really great players are tested on your course, but that can't be the main motivation. I mean, you're, des- you're designing for good players. You're designing for everybody as well, if you can. You know, sometimes those... For example, Ellison's not in that category because um, Packer wanted a course for 10 handicap and below. That His was, mates. That was the brief. Yep. 10 handicap and below. Now, is that a bad thing? Well, I'm not sure, but it was actually a very good thing at Elliston because it meant that you could include some of those phenomenal holes that wouldn't work on a normal golf course. That's right. Carries that are unfeasible for yeah, people. Yeah, the difficulty of it, and yeah. but they're exciting and they're thrilling, those holes. So I'm really pleased that it went that way. Um, 
Yeah, you know, we've added forward tees, sort of added forward tees. They weren't in the original brief, were they, Bob? If I recall, you told me a story (laughs) that you you asked about that once. I I think I can tell this. I don't think anybody (laughs) object. It was – the funny part of it was that in talking to Packer on the phone, you fairly quickly learned that the thing to do was to say as little as possible (laughs) and to get off the phone as quickly as possible. And one particular day, he seemed to be in a good mood, so I got a bit expansive. And I said to him, Kerry, what about women's tees? Silence at the other end for about a minute. What the effing hell (laughs) would you ask me that effing question for? That was the end of that. (laughs) It's an answer, I guess. But that story, it's it's a funny thing about stories. It's it's Chinese whispers, I think, is it? But if someone starts a story... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's called Twitter these days. Well, it's come around... That story's come back to me from people who didn't realise that I was the guy who did it. <laughs> you were the guy that was there. And it's a totally different story. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, where were we with that? You're talking about building for building Yellowstone for good players. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. To what you try to do, which is... That was for good players. I, um, I don't think there was any other that was strictly for good players. Now, for example, Ardpin started life. Huggins saw it very early in the construction. It was too narrow. And... One of the arguments, one of the difficulties I did have with Greg Coffey was trying to convince him that you do not diminish a course's worth if you make it forgiving for average players. It doesn't change the way in which really good players play the course. You need it to be forgiving for average players. And for two reasons. One, because a golf course shouldn't be insane. Game's supposed to be fun, yeah, people. Yeah, the F word be, that we forget in yeah. golf. And secondly, because if you want a business of having people stay in your lodge and play on this golf course, they're not all going to be scratch players. So you better make it user-friendly. If you want them to come a second time, don't yeah. let it cost them so, 20 balls the first time. So a small number of people saw it when it was too tight. It has, thankfully, been widened considerably. And it is fairly wide now. With a couple of, a couple of holes of narrow... Um, there were a couple of force carries that we couldn't do anything about because of the approval. Wouldn't have wanted to anyway because they're beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, but by and large, it's it's fairly wide, and that from the very back, it's six thousand eight hundred yards. Now I object. It's almost a matter of honour, has been for me over the last ten years, to keep a course below seven thousand yards if possible. This idiotic idea in Asia that you've got to be, you know what? If you're not 7677, seven, the client group thinks that you've done something wrong. Mm-hmm. There's, there's this perception that that's what it has to be. And, it, and, and you know, it's sadly in Asia, if you're not 36, 36, two threes, two fives, two threes, th- something's wrong with that. And I used to write to them and say, hey, hold on a second. Here's a list of the top 20 mm-hmm. courses in the world. And almost none of them. I mean, you know, they're par 70s with two uh, – St. Andrews, two par um, – Two par threes. Three, two, two par, par fives. fives. That's it. St. George's par 70, well, depending on what they do, 70, 71. Um, a lot of them are 70. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of them do not conform with this idea of two threes, two, which you couldn't convince them. Right. It's not just Asia, that problem, though, is it, Bob? Uh, here in Australia, too. Perhaps yes, not as bad, but it's... Not a, as bad here. We've tr- but, yes, still, but Asia, totally. Mm. You, you had to do it. Yeah. You just had to do that. So that was a bit sad. Um there's two things at play, isn't there, Bob, in that. One is this notion that hard equals good, which has been to the detriment of the game Yep. broadly. Yep. And the other is that there's some kind of formula 
for golf that that you can take this most free of all sporting or athletic pursuits that has no boundary lines for the most part, and we all have out of bounds at some point, but it's not a case of in or out in golf like it is in tennis or football yeah. or those other games, yeah. and try to homogenize it in some I don't know why we do it. The older I get, the the more I can't understand why we do it. But it totally, has to be passed. Totally it agree. It's it's the-, the variety in golf is one of the things we should all be thankful for. I mean, you play on a tennis court; it's the same dimensions everywhere you play. Doesn't it? Exactly. Most, most games are like that. That's Football right. fields are like that. Yeah. Uh, we are really lucky that we get a variety of landscapes. It's a course. It's a game you can play with people who aren't of the same school that you are. Mm. So you can't do that with tennis. You, no. you need to have somebody about the same level of you. You and Greg Norman have played golf, haven't you? Oh yeah, yeah. And they, but I it, hit it past him a couple of times. It's yeah. not many. <laughs> I'm sure, he loves to hear about that every time it comes up. No, but well. look, and you can play it all your life. Mm-hmm. You walk. Well, not everybody walks, but you walk when you. A lot of sure. us walk when you can. Yeah, and it's social. So if people ask me, you know, is golf going to die? Well, I don't know the answer, but it seems to me it's too good a game. To go away. Well, apparently, Bob, it's boring. If you ask people who don't play it, you know, they, they what are we going to do about that? They haven't but played. What are we going to do about that? Okay, I've got, got an example there. I've got a step, the older stepson had that point of view. His, his four year old boy went past a golf course one time and said, I want to do that. So now he has to take him to Moore Park to do that. Starts having lessons. The very first swing he ever took, they sent us a video of it. The kid, the little one, little right? kid, yeah. little kid swung from le- from right foot to left foot. Finished like this. The ball went <laughs> in the air. I couldn't believe it. It's humiliating, isn't it? <laughs> I think I think this kid's got my wife's hand-eye coordination. Um, but the story, the, the interesting thing is that his father, one day because he had nothing to do, picked up a stick in a nearby bay. And started swinging, and I happened to be there, and I, was, I just wasn't conscious of who it was, but I, I was watching a little boy, and somebody said, oh, "Wow, that's quite interesting." And I turned around; it's this stepson. It never it hadn't played golf. You should see it. Just a natural. Absolutely, having lessons now, plays five days a week. <laughs> that's right, right. Writes little notes to me saying, "You were right. You were right. <laughs> you were right." Where, where should I play next? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not sure where he's going to join, but he's gone from whatever score down to. He's in the 90s at um, Moore Park at the moment. And he's only limited by the fact that his short game's not good enough. But And, and that guy is now saying, why did I miss out on this until I'm whatever age I am? So what do we do about that, Bob, as golf? Because I feel like, whilst I personally believe it's predominantly the responsibility of Golf Australia and the PGA and the authoritative bodies in golf to do it, we all as golfers have some responsibility, don't we, to try to share the game. Interesting. I'm not sure what the marketing is. You're right that Golf Australia, for example, is very aware of this. The golf industry is, and it's trying to do something about it. Mm. And they're trying to get courses into school, all sorts of things. In parallel with that, it might well be that we have to change what the golf courses are like a bit too. Um, My own view, I mean, you know, the arguments are people are too busy. um, Do you buy that? Well, let me keep going through them. People are too busy. You know, blokes are more hands-on with families and whatnot than they used to be 100 years ago. Um, Takes too much time. If it is the case that it takes too much time, I'm personally a believer in nine holes 
and I think Nine Holes has a future. Um, there's less land involved. New ones are a lot less expensive to do. If they happen to be in real estate projects, you can still get the value from them. You can do two rounds if you want to. You don't if you don't have to want to. Uh, my mates at Barrel and I play Nine Holes. That's all we play. So I think there's a, I'm not really a fan of 12. I'm not sure why. I, I pref- well, I prefer nine. It's I, an odd number, isn't it, 12? It's sort uh, of not, uh, 18 doesn't divide into it neatly. Well, the, 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 the theory is that you have loops of yeah. – you have two loops of six mm-hmm. and you can do one of them twice. Yeah. But two loops of six is sometimes quite difficult to manage. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, ge- the geometry of that can actually be awkward. It's an amazing thing if you're on a golf course site and you're trying to do a routing – and say so you're doing the two different, there's two different nines, and you're trying to get around the first nine. The number of times that eight holes work out <laughs> magnificently, <laughs> and you cannot manoeuvre it to get a, ni- a ninth, ninth hole, hole without taking something, something away. away. It's just it's sad. I mean, the, the geometry. People think, that, for example, that if you take one hole out of the geometry of a golf course, that's easy. You just put another one somewhere else. But of course, it's not like that. Of course, it's not. The geometry of a golf course links things together. And if you take part of the link away, now you've got a real problem. That's the whole point of it, isn't it? Um, Well, does this beg a fundamental question, or two fundamental questions, Bob? I've got a million fundamental questions. Here's one. The course architecture purist will tell you that the land will dictate the golf course. That's how it should be. And that's true. But land doesn't come in neat nine-hole loops that start with a first and a tenth at the clubhouse, and a ninth and an eighteenth that come back to that central point. So there's already issues there. As you say, if you're going to dictate that it's 12 holes and two holes of six loops, well, you're now you're not working with the land. You're imposing on the land. So there's a certain set of skills. Yeah, right there. Um, and then the next question becomes, what's the importance of the actual architecture of the holes, even for those who don't understand or care about architecture, in maintaining people's interest in the game? Oh. There's only an hour and a half in each of those answers, I would have thought. <laughs> um. These are all constraints that we don't think about with golf, do we? And golf fan and, and fans of golf courses criticise golf courses. Oh, this hole's not good, and that's a, without any understanding of what the constraints were to start with, which were normally this is where we're building the clubhouse and this is where we're building the houses. You've got the rest to work with. You work it out. Um, yes, it's true that you very rarely get a standalone golf course normally they are constrained or they don't happen um, so for example in my career um, brook waters in that category mm-hmm. pelican water pelican waters the vintage mm-hmm. um, stone cutters ridge most of them mm-hmm. are it pays for the golf correct they're in that constraint you can normally get a reasonable result for the reasons i mentioned before that the the golf land um and the residential land are favoured oppositely. So, but it's still the geometry is still a constraining, constraining factor. You don't often get a free run. Um, and, and in the case you asked me about, Alston, that I didn't answer, there's a similarity with, with Scotland in the sense that Elliston uh, was 80,000 acres. First question, where do you put the golf course? <laughs> which, which bit of this are we yeah. going to use? Where, what do you do? So... In that case, I drove around with um, Tony Clark, who was the manager of, of Elliston at the time, and he wasn't a golfer. 
And he assumed that it would go along the tops of all these ridges. <laughs> and we're driving along. On day three, we've been out this way, out that way. We're driving along one of these ridges, and he's trying to convince me that this is where you put the golf course. And I looked down below and said, there's a creek, almost like a river, fast-flowing thing, and lovely ground. I said, well, what's that down there, Tony? Oh, that's where the polo horses uh, look up. Can we go and have a look at that? And um, he said, well, you can't have that because that's, you know, this is polo land. But I'll tell you what, I'll ask Packer. And Packer understood and it's fine. Yeah. Take, the the, take the horses, move them elsewhere. Yeah, move away. <laughs> yeah. So where do you put it? And the Scotland thing was the same. 15,000 acres, 10 kilometres of oceanfront, what do you do? Mm-hmm. Well, you put it um, near to the centre of activity, which was the house and what is now the, the lodge. It wasn't going to be a lodge at that point. Um, but it's got to start from somewhere, doesn't it? You need, you need a starting and end point. Yeah, those weren't necessarily constrained. No. But most projects are yeah. tightly constrained. Mm. Um, you know, you've got all sorts of issues like road access, mm-hmm. where you're going to be able to get approval for such a thing. Mm. That can dictate where you have clubhouses. Mm-hmm. Um, there are so many constraints. And often, say, for example, Stonecutters Ridge, part of the ground was flattable. And the remainder wasn't. Well, you've got to use the flattable ground because you can't put houses on the flattable ground. That's fine. We had to do that. Um, so you are constrained. What can golf design do? Oh, God. Is it important, I think, is the question. Is, is golf course architecture Well, yeah, it's important. For the health of the game. Yeah. I think it's important that, first of all, the courses remain interesting but are wide while being interesting. Not wide just for its own sake. We can hit it anywhere and there's no reason to hit it in any particular place, but wide and forgiving with great emphasis on good players playing somewhere in order to get some benefit. Either they can reach a par five green in two or they've got the best angle to the – whatever it is. So I think you've got to keep it user-friendly, maybe more than it was in the past – I don't think, and I don't think you make them overly long. And I do think, for environmental reasons, that you become more and more aware of fitting a golf course into any environment that has some advantages. If you've got none at all, well, that's a different matter. Um, that's good for the environment. I actually think it's also good for golf. It's much more pleasant to play on a golf course that's nicely fitted into an attractive landscape rather than something that's been imposed. Um, So I think those things help. I don't think we're in the business of the marketing of golf because most of our interaction is with clients and... Existing golfers. Well, it's with clients, it's with with golfers, it's with um, authorities, it's with clients, it's with uh, uh, swagger people. Um, Does writing help in that respect? See, it's interesting that Doke wrote his way into this business. Mm -hmm. He went 20 years before he got the opportunity to get going. And sadly, I gave him (laughs) him one of his biggest opportunities because we had uh, Barn Bugle Dunes to start with. Oh, really? Yeah. I never knew that. Yeah, Greg Ramsey came. Do do you know Greg Ramsey? I I know of Greg. I've never met Greg, but I'm somewhat aware of him. Well, uh, after a while- This is the good stuff, Bob, yeah. After a while, I didn't take Greg seriously. Greg Ramsey? No. So we ended up 
So he came to you first, is yep. what you're saying. We ended up letting it go. And you know the story. I mean, he, he tried to get it up and running two or three different ways. None of those worked. Yep, that's right. During that period, it took a couple of years for that to happen. During that period, Richard watched all this. Did you meet Richard? Did you go I down there Richard and have a look? Well. Right, so had you been down there to have a look at the site? Yeah, I'd been there, yeah. Before Doak and Clayton? Yeah. Got, right, yeah. okay. No, Richard, well, Richard and, and Sally came over to Ardfin. Okay. Year, oh, wow. Terrific bloke. We had him on this podcast as well. You yeah, yeah. Oh, he's a great he's, guy. He's a terrific fellow. He's a great guy. And um, Colette and I go down and stay with him occasionally. And one, one, of, his, one of his great attributes is, as I am, he's a fanatic for South Australian Shiraz. <laughs> and, he, and he has one of the best suppliers of this in history. So you've got day and night covered. Golf yeah. during the day, Shiraz by yeah. night. night. So anyway, so he, he watches all of this. And during this time, all sorts of people have told him this is the most wonderful land for golf. It's not going to cost much to do um, because it's on favourable sandy ground. So in the end, he thought, well, okay, I'll do it. And he did it. By that stage, I can't remember. Um, Greg Ramsey got Doak involved. Some great stories there, but I can't tell them. <laughs> <laughs> the microphones will be off soon. We yep. can discuss that. Um, Doak was already involved with Greg Ramsey. That's where it went with... With and we were actually involved in the second one for a while. Oh right. Um, when I was with Norman, there was a period of time when we had a joint venture called Metalist with Macquarie Bank. I remember that. Metalist was going to partner with him to do it. Oh. And I I can't remember what happened, but partway through that, Metalist got cold feet, and um, Mike Kaiser had a. I'd done about ten designs for second course. Um. My, we lost, where Lost Farm is now? Yeah, well, Lost Farm, yeah. So you've answered one of my questions, which was, is there one that got away <laughs> over the time? I'm sure there's plenty, but yeah, on, I can see it on your face still now. Oh, right, that, that wasn't just one that got away. Borrowing your brow. That wasn't just one that got away. That was a sequence that probably yeah. got away. Yeah. Um, anyway, you can't, you know, there's no point looking at that. I've now got a glamorous one on the south, on the south coast of South Australia, mm-hmm. and this is... As good as Ardfin is for clifftop stuff, this is in the same category for dunes. It'll blow your mind. Okay. It's along about four kilometres of beach, three different beaches with headlands, and oh, it's just extraordinary. And, you know, wild sand dunes. And, and it's taken four and a half years to get that approved. The approval process is always, yeah. In a way, I'm, I'm disappointed about that um, because I was punting the fees to be involved in it. And it's a lot of work, huge amount of work. But I'm also pleased because, I mean, you wouldn't miss this project for all the money in China, particularly China. (laughs) (laughs) And the approval process required us to not only do the planning in absolute detail, you know, properly done, finished, committed to, then the clearing drawings, staged, and committed to, and then the contour drawings over all the shape that you could anticipate throughout the course, committed to. And this is unusual. In before an, you start uh, to build. Before you, right. yeah, yeah, before you start to build. The one advantage to us with that is that thing is now locked in. Mm-hmm. And if some... Chinese developer got involved in it. The, the, the guys who own it are talking to money people right. to get it done. 
and there's a few few things that are likely to happen now. But say it had say it had gone to say someone like a Chinese guy and he'd wanted Jack Nichols. Well, he can't do it because the design is totally committed to. Committed to. So I assume the downside of that is. You can't do what's the sort of the, the attitude du jour is do it on the ground as you go. You can't make changes. You can still do do it on the ground. Um, we've got good contour information for it. So if you study it carefully enough, you've got to look for the places to see where you need to adjust. Mm-hmm. And how do I adjust that within the committed clearing? The bounds of what you've already... Now, where you feel you need to go outside of just the golf hole, mostly it's within the golf holes, fortunately. In some places, it goes outside those constraints. We were able to do that within the approvable area of disturbance. A couple of simple questions to finish. What's the future of golf? <laughs> well, I'm, but- I'm kidding. Who could know? But it's a, it is a big question, isn't it? For all of us, whatever part of the industry you happen to be in or whether you are simply a lover of the game... Since I mean I've talked about what what I think about everything and what I'm doing, uh, the I part with Harrison Golf is not just me. Um, I was going to ask you about this. Okay, you, uh, you, you've brought us there, so um, you start. I'm really lucky that um, Young Scott Champion is now working with me. He works half the time on a contract basis, and he has his other half of his life is worked elsewhere. Um, he approached us when we were still with Norman when he first started um, landscape architecture at university. And at the time, what he could offer was just CAD services. And that was a help. We already the, had one the guy. The computer but, general, yeah, yeah, yeah. CAD, yeah. So he worked with us for the four years it took him to do the, the course. And then when, when I left, he came with me. And over the intervening 10 years, he's gone from, he's still uh, um, the provider of those services because I couldn't do it, mm-hmm. I can't do it myself. But he's also developed into all of the other aspects of golf course design. And say, for example, at Muirfield and Castle Hill and to a lesser extent at New Brighton, um, he's a part of everything. Um, Qualified with Landscape has had um, worked with a council for three or four years, which is a big plus too. Mm-hmm. He knows all the ropes about the um, approval process. People like him. He's a pretty good golfer, um, and I enjoy the interaction. So I do. I do want to mention that that it it was more or less just me at Ardfin because that meant going to Scotland. So that was fine. Um, but from now on, these things are a is mixture. That, is that important to you, Bob? To be a sort of yeah, a, it's a, a mentor. It's a really interesting thing. You get a bit older, and not just about golf, but you wonder about the value of legacy. Mm-hmm. If you're going to die, is there any value to legacy? People worry about it. Maybe there is, but more importantly is the process. I mean, it's the same with anything in life. If you can't enjoy the process and can only be rewarded by you know, the eventual outcome, you're going to have a tough time. My own view of this is that um, I really enjoy the interaction with Scott it, it's a very difficult thing to put yourself in a position where you might have a career as a golf course architect in Australia, mm-hmm. so I've provided that. What will happen when I cease to be part, I'm not sure, but at least he's got the opportunity. It'll be different in the future because it won't be as many brand new projects as I was involved with. 
Um, so um, while there's a bit of your ego that says, from now on I want it all to be me, not really. I mean, some of it is. Ardfin is. Mm-hmm. The previous projects with Norman, well, they're not totally me, but they're, mm-hmm. they're mainly me. But the future will be um, a little different, and that's fine. I'll still have control because if, you, if you're getting Harrison Golf, people still want Harrison. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's why. The same as when they wanted yeah. Greg Norman, yeah. they wanted Greg. Yeah. To some, ex- to so, some extent. Yeah. yeah. So that's still part of it. Bob, I, there's a bunch of stuff we haven't touched the scratch right. the surface on, but let's not continue okay. on. We've been at this for far too long. You've been more than generous with your time. I can only thank you. Uh, it's been fantastic to talk to you. It always is fantastic to talk to you. I've never had a bad conversation with you, but I'm very thankful that you let me record this one, so really appreciate well, your time. I'm really pleased to be part of it, Rod. Uh, look forward to seeing you again. Well, as is always the case with these interviews, there were dozens of questions and topics that we didn't get to explore with Bob, but I sincerely hope that the ones we did were entertaining and helped you learn a bit more about a man whose contribution to the game in this country is, to be frank, underrated. That's it for episode 12 of the show, but don't forget to come back next time when it's rules, rules, and more rules. We sit down with longtime European Tour Chief Referee, John Paramore. That's next time on The Thing About Golf. <laughs>